Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Veda Pragyananda, and you were just hearing the strains of the beautiful mantra, Babanam Kevalam, and the meaning of that mantra is only the name of the most beloved, or another interpretation is love is all there is, that permeating this entire universe is a supreme consciousness filled with love. This universe comes from love, anandam, from bliss, and it goes to bliss. And this is the philosophy which comes from Tantra. And that's what I'm here to talk about tonight is Tantra, because it is a term of, of spirituality which is often misunderstood. But if uh, you go a little bit deeper into the subject, you'll see that, that Tantra is actually the root of, of yoga and of even all spirituality around the world. So let's uh, take a look at this term more closely. And before I begin, let me just say where I'm getting my information from, where I've, I've learned it from, that I'm a teacher of meditation and taught by a great guru whose name is Sri Sri Anandamurti. And today I'm going to talk about Tantra and the history of it based on the works of Anandamurti. He wrote some seminal discourses called Tantra and Sadhana, and then he composed a book about the life of Shiva called Namashivaya Shantaya. So a lot of what I'm going to say right now is, is based on these works. So let's take a look at what is Tantra. You know that in this world, sometimes a little bit of, uh, of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So the reason I say that is because many people have heard of Tantra and they, immediately in the West, um, the idea comes up something to do with sex, the yoga of sex, or or some kind of, in India, then it has to do with, um, people think of a, of a very strange kind of a cult of death and um, mystery of or black magic. But Tantra has a much more noble uh, side, which we should be acquainted with. So let's take a look at it. First of all, the word Tantra, we can take it apart and analyze it according to its uh, Sanskrit roots. So tra, you might have, you heard the word mantra. We just did a mantra before. So mantra means um, something which liberates the mind. So tra means liberation. Man means the mind. Now here in tantra, we have, again, this root um, tra meaning liberation. But what liberation? So look at the first part of the word, tan. One way to look at that is that it is a Sanskrit root which talks about expansion. So Tantra in this case becomes that practice which liberates us through the process of expansion, expansion of mind and expansion of consciousness. So this is Tantra. And then another way to look at it is the Sanskrit um, ta, the Sanskrit root ta is symbolic of of crudity, of the material world, bondages. So sort of one of the meanings of Tantra is that practice which liberates us from the bondages of, of the material world. So which takes us from, from bondage to liberation, to freedom, ultimate freedom. So this is what is Tantra. But before we go into the origins of Tantra, uh, Exactly, we have to look at the, even the origins of human spirituality, of um, human engagement with uh, with uh, nature and the forces even beyond nature. So, in ancient times, 
people uh, used to look at the natural phenomenon and they would worship these phenomena. So if they saw rain, and if they saw lightning or thunder, they used to think that there was some God behind each of these uh, different manifestations of nature and they would worship those gods. So this is what, according, you know, we call this, usually when we look at this kind of uh, um, worship, we call it animism. We, we, the ancient people thought that the, um, the forces of this world were animated by, by supernatural beings or supernatural forces. So they worshipped these, these forces. Now, this was the state of, of human um, engagement with, uh, with nature and with the beyond. Sometime around 15,000 years ago in Central Asia, there was a group of people which are termed Aryan. It was actually a, it's an ethnic term. It's not a, sometimes we think that, oh, Hitler invented this. You know, we called about his white people, the Aryans. But there was the people of Central Asia, of, of Russia, Iran. Um, they were called Aryan. Anyway, these Aryans were a nomadic people, and they were living in, um, in a conditions when they also were worshipping the nature. But amongst these Aryans, there were a, a group of people who were recognized as deep thinkers. They were called Rishi. Rishi means a seer, someone who sees the truth. Um, seer, C-E-S-E-E-R, you know, someone who sees the truth. And they were literally thought to have, whatever they were speaking, they would, they would see it and they would understand it. So these great um, rishis, these sages, they were pondering on this question of what are the, um, the, the roots of these natural forces. And so first, like the others, they thought, well, there was a, a fire god or a lightning god or a rain god or thunder god. But then some of the deeper thinkers amongst these rishis then started to say, wait a minute, behind all these, these natural forces, maybe there's one. There's one God. There's one force. They called that Parama Purusha, Supreme Consciousness. So then they started to compose poems uh, about this Supreme Consciousness. And these poems were compiled orally at first because the, this, the method of writing was not um, systematized. It didn't have a good script to put everything down. So the first teachings or the first explorations of their their knowledge were were set in poems. And these poems were compiled in books called the Veda, Vedas. Veda means knowledge. So th these books of knowledge were called the Vedas. So these, these rishis compiled, uh, they, they began to compile a, a doctrine or a, a way of life based on this worship of, the, of that one supreme um, being, that Paramapurusha. And then they, they devised different kinds of rituals of worship. Um, there were sacrifices and fire worship and different kinds of uh, prayers and, and things which they did to try to commune with this, this one um, force. And in, the, um, in this Vedic uh, literature, this Vedic approach, probably the highest um, manifestation is something which is called Savitri Mantra or Savitri Rik. And in that mantra, 
the yogic, um, the Vedic rishis, they, they said, oh, supreme um, entity, lead me onto that path. Lead me onto that path. Lead me to, to, to you. So this was the extent of their, of their practice. It was, a, it was basically an extroversal in the sense that it was um, performed with different kind of items. It was rituals. Uh, but it didn't have a, a deep meditative side. But that changed sometime around, we can say, 7,000 years ago. Because at this time, these, these Vedic Aryans started to migrate. They migrated east to India. And India was a, a more fertile place. It was a, a, a green land with much more rain than the places where they came from. And these Vedic Aryans, um, they named this place Bharata Varsha, and it means that the land which nourishes and expands. So, this, so they came into India. And when they came into India, it, it set the scene for a, a cultural and for a, a spiritual synthesis of, 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 of different thoughts. In India, they found that there were some indigenous um, peoples, indigenous races. Ananda Murti, in his um, essay, um, Tantra and the Indo-Aryan Civilization, he, he, or he defines four races that were indigenous in India. They were Mongol, he calls them. They were like the um, people from Nepal and Tibet, um, Oriental people. And then there was Dravidian. These are the people of South India, um, very dark complexion. And then another race he defines was called Austric, which these are people who have something in common with the Aborigines of Australia. So anyway, these were the indigenous races of India. And among these indigenous races, they were practicing um, a different kind of spirituality in, in the sense that it was based on meditation um, and, and going within. It was not so much a, a ritual or a prayer, but there were practices um, which we today would associate with, with yoga, like um, understanding of chakras and, and mantras and, and all these kind of things. So these, these were, were um, practiced by these uh, people from um, the Dravidians and the other non-Aryan non people of indigenous peoples of India. And so there was a difference of um, approach, but also at, at this time there was a, a clash of cultures, a clash of civilizations, clash of peoples. It was a, it was a, it was it was a warfare. It was to see which um, which which race would be dominant. And the Vedic Aryans they they looked upon the three indigenous Indian races as inferior, and that's when the caste system was was basically set up, and they put themselves as the top, and and then the other races were were either called untouchable out of the system or they were at the, at the lowest rungs of it. So it was a, it was a terrible time of, of, of struggle. So in this time of struggle, at a, at a very crucial juncture, we, which we, is about 7,000 years ago, according to Ananda Murtaji, there was uh, an extraordinary birth of a, of a, of a figure, a, a leader, and his name was Sadashiva. Sadashiva means 
the one who is always absorbed in, in consciousness or the one who's, whose only vow is for the welfare of others. So this was him. him. And he was like a, um, a great teacher and a great uh, social leader as well. And he has come down now, he's recognized as the god Shiva. He was called, like in the, the, the Hindu um, pantheon, he's the god Shiva. But here we're talking about a person who lived, although because it was an age which we call prehistoric, 7,000 years ago, we, it would be difficult to establish, establish the, um, you know, where he died and lived and the historicity of him you know, would be difficult. But, but we're talking about a person, but not a, um, a god in the heavens. So he, he was an extraordinary person because he was adept in the spirituality of the um, indigenous Indians, of, of meditation, of yoga, um, all of these different practices, which are basically tantra. He was an adept. He was a guru of tantra. So now what happened was, when the Aryans came, they thought that these uh, indigenous peoples were a bit inferior, but they recognized that that their uh, method of meditation, of inward practice, was something interesting. And some of the, um, the Aryans started to learn that. And furthermore, Shiva was so attractive as a personality, he was able to um, be adored or praised or, or respected by all of the different races and help to bring them together. So he created a social synthesis. And he cemented that synthesis also by marrying uh, he married an Aryan princess, he married a, a, a Mongolian um, lady, and he married a Dravidian. So he had different wives, and, and he brought about a, a social synthesis. So this was the role of Shiva. He, he brought about a social synthesis, and he systematized the Tantra, and he, he made it attractive to um, all the races of India. So, so Tantra was basically born... Um, in a systematized form with, with the advent of Shiva. And he's, his wife, Parvati, was also a learned uh, and accomplished yogini, and she used to ask Shiva different kind of questions. She knew the answers, but she wanted Shiva to a answer the questions so that they would be recorded for posterity. And those questions and those answers were recorded, um, first orally and then later written, in a form of questions and answers of, of dialogues, which became uh, part of a literature known as the Tantra Shastra. So the Tantra Shastras are, the Shastra means a, a book or a, a practice which will liberate through discipline, liberation through discipline. So it's a code of, of disciplined conduct, a code of, of disciplined um, activity which will lead you to liberation. So these were the Tantra Shastras, and, and there, were, there were several Tantra Shastras, or different books that were written. And then after Shiva died, then um, many of them were lost, and um, they went into um, decline, because the main thing of Shiva's teaching was uh, that it was to be passed on by from guru to disciple, guru to disciple. And when the, they were not proper gurus, then uh, some of the teachings were lost or, or um, distorted. So anyway, these Tantra Shastras were the, the base of, of a practice of, of, yo 
of meditation and of, in fact, we can say that the yoga of today is really based on this tantra. So what is in these tantra shastras? So maybe by now, if you heard tantra shastra, you might think, oh, I better go to the bookstore and then um, pick one up. So if you go to the bookstore, you will find, um, you know, an esoteric bookshop, you will find tantra shastras. And these are the... Um, the Tantra Shastras, many of them were um, translated by one um, Englishman of the 19th century. His name was Sir John Woodruff. Uh, and sometimes he wrote under the um, pen name of Arthur Avalon. And so if you go take a look at the Tantra Shastra, you'll be surprised because you won't be able to understand anything. It's very uh, garbled. One of the reasons for this, there are two reasons for this, but one of the reasons was um, that when the um, Tantra was laid down, it was supposed to be laid down f from, given from guru to disciple. But because they didn't want um, uninitiated people to know the secrets, some of it was written in a code language. So this is one reason. And then another reason is just over the time it got um, changed and distorted and, and, and um, it really needs to be, it's not something to be learned in a book, it's really something which you should learn from a teacher. So this was the Tantra Shastra. So anyway, Ananda Murtaji in his, um, in his uh, essay, Tantra and, and Sadhana, he, he goes into the Tantra Shastra and he extracts from it what is uh, intelligible for us. So what's there in that um, essay and what, what is really important? First thing which struck me is that, that Shiva gave tremendous importance to two things, guru and disciple. This is the heart of, of, the, of the tantric practice, guru and disciple. So what did Shiva say about the guru? First of all, he said that there are several grades of guru. There are three grades of guru, three types. One was the, um, the inferior, then the, the middle level, and the superior. So the inferior type of, of guru was the one who will give some instructions, but um, he doesn't really enforce them or doesn't make sure that the disciple follows them. Maybe the disciple will follow them, maybe not. The guru doesn't really also care. Then there's a middle grade of guru, and the middle grade of guru is he will teach his disciple something and then do a little bit of follow-up, but then he will also lose interest and doesn't really follow through to the end. And the highest grade of the guru is um, uttam guru, or best guru, is the one who will give information and make sure that the disciple follows it. He will even, um, he loves and punishes the disciple. He makes sure, he, the, the, the guru of tantra is an ultimate guru, the good guru is the very, he can be tough in his discipline, but the reason for that is he wants to, to see that the um, disciple will, will follow and be successful. So these are the three grades of guru. Also, um, Shiva enumerated about 13 qualities of, a, of the highest guru. So he said, he said, Shanto, Danto, Kulinascha. It's a, it's a Sanskrit poem. So Shanto means he is... Um, tranquil of mind. You know, you've heard of shanti or peace. He's a tranquil mind. Danto means he can control his mind and he can control himself. And kulinastra means 
that he can elevate the kundalini of anyone. The kundalini is one of the concepts of Tantra, which we'll talk about. It's the coiled serpentine force. It's the, um, the fundamental spiritual force, which is in um, sleeping in humans and which gets awakened through spiritual practice. So um, elevated people raise their own kundalini to a certain heights, you know, to different chakras. But the, the, the highest guru um, is the one who can not only raise his own kundalini, but can raise the kundalini of any person on this planet. So these are some of the qualities. And then Shiva enumerates more, that, that this person who is a guru is, is soberly dressed, is modest, is a family person. Yes, the, the highest guru of Tantra is, is a family person, not a monk, but a family person. Um, and he earns his livelihood in a... Um, in a normal way, in a, in a good way, um, his right livelihood, as the Buddhists would call it. And that he's well-versed in mantras, and not just he knows one or two, but he knows the whole science of mantra. He's well-versed in, in tantra, and he knows, um, has super-sharp mind, and he knows philosophy, the ins and outs of philosophy. Um, so these are, these are some of the qualities. And Another very important is that he loves and governs his disciples. Not only just um, love, but he will also punish, even if necessary. So this is, these are the qualities of a guru. But then, guru is not enough. You need The other part of the equation is you have to have a, a proper disciple. So I've seen many people, they go around um, say, oh yeah, I want to find the best guru, and they, they sort of... Um, go from one guru to another, and then they find one, oh, it's not good enough. But they never ask themselves, are they the proper disciple? But Shiva did. Shiva enumerated. He said that there are three kinds of, just as there are three kinds of, um, of guru, there are three kinds of, of disciple. So what are these? Um, he used some images. He said, look at a, a cup that's immersed in the water, but the face down, the the, the, uh, the the opening is pointed towards the bottom of the pond. So if you put that cup in the water, when it's immersed, you will say, yeah, it's filled with water <laughs> because this water is, is filled up the empty space. But if you pull that cup up out of the water um, and it's, you know, the face is going downward, of course the water is not going to stay. The gravity will pull. The, so when you take that thing out of the lake, out of the pond, you'll have an empty cup. So this is symbolic of the disciple who, while he's with the guru in close proximity, it looks like he's meditating, it looks like he's gaining something. But if you take him out of that water, he's, um, he's void. He, he hasn't retained anything. So those who don't retain knowledge are, are the lowest kind of, of disciple. Then there's a middle kind. <clears throat> um, here, was in the scriptures, Tantra scriptures, it's compared to somebody who um, gathers fruit, um, you know, goes to a tree and grasses fruit and is, and is gathered in his, um, in his shirt. You know, he takes his shirt out and, and tries to bunch them up and, you know, make a pocket with his shirt and um, keep all the fruit. But then when he starts moving, then the fruit get, get lost. So, so nothing is really there. And the highest kind of disciple is somebody who, they use the image of the cup again, but this time the cup is um, immersed in the water, but the, the, the um, open side is facing up. So you put that cup in the water, and it fills up, and then you lift it up straight, and it retains the water. 
So the best grade of a, of a disciple is one who who will retain that knowledge even when he's, the guru has um, gone physically from him and he's, he goes to another country, he goes back home and he continues. He learns something from that guru and he continues to, to meditate. So this is the, this is the core of the, of the tantric um, practice is that you need a proper guru and a proper disciple. There are some other cores that are in it. One of the um, important things too is a process called diksha. Diksha. Normally in the West, if we 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 would think about when someone learned meditation, we sometimes use a term. We say, "Oh, he was initiated into the practice," but the English term initiation really doesn't um, catch the full essence of what what is meant by diksha when when someone was um, initiated into tantric practice. It was said that he would, um, he got diksha. So what is diksha? There are two parts to this word. The first one, di, and it comes from a longer term called dipanishakti. Di means, dipak means um, a candle. It's a, a light. So, And dipanishakti is the light, the force that you get from this light. So like if you're in a dark room and, and let's say someone says, okay, the door is over there, but you know, if there's no light, it's very difficult to make your path to the door. So in the process of initiation that someone is given a light so they, they know where to direct their attention, where to direct their consciousness, this is called dipanishakti. It's a process of where you learn how to, to um, concentrate on where to put your consciousness. So, so this is the first part of diksha. Second part is ksha. It comes from a longer word called papakayam or papakshayam, and it means destruction of sin. One English word, but a better word of reactive momenta of sanskara. You know that all of us have come to this world, um, and we exist in it, and we have a lot of. Uh, we don't just exist from today onward, but we have everything that we've done before influences us. And and not only, the yogis also say, not only you came from this one life, but you have other lives. And so whatever has been done in these other lives is sort of hanging on you. It's like, it's momentum. Like for instance, if you, momentum is like this. Suppose you want to um, say, okay, from this day onward, I'm just going to sit here and meditate. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything. So you close your door up, and what's going to happen? Then someone's going to come and say, oh, you, you said you were going to meet me today at this time. Then a phone will ring, and then another person will come, and he's collecting a bill, or some you owe some money. So you have so much stuff that's going on. So this is the reactive momenta of the past, which is called sanskara in Sanskrit. So all of us have tremendous amounts of sanskaras, whether it be from things we have did in this life or that life or or, uh, you know, past lives or whatever. So these sanskaras are burdens on us. So when somebody comes to learn meditation from a tantra guru, the guru takes or destroys some of those sanskaras in that process to, to lighten your load. So this is called papakayam. So diksha is a process where a disciple goes to a teacher and learns 
the method of, of spiritual practice. And in that method, he learns, he gets a, some light in his consciousness, which will help him to reach the goal. And also some of his burden is taken away. So this is the practice of, of diksha. And it's, it's a very um, important practice. In ancient times, it was, it was given with great um, uh, penance. People had to practice great penance. And I think a very great story about this is the, um, the story of the, of the tantric Tibetan yogi Milarepa, who, who went to a teacher named Marpa, and Marpa put him through many tests. The reason for that was because this Milarepa had many um, bad sangskaras, bad deeds that he had done, and, and, and Marpa wanted to lighten the load of Milarepa so he could practice his meditation properly. So anyway, in, in, in meditation, in tantra, in, in tantra you get this practice of diksha. This is the initiation. It's a very important part. And without this, it doesn't work. It's like, that's why it cannot be taught just by send out some books and then you will learn how to uh, meditate uh, just through a book. But the, the touch of the teacher is very important. So this is, um, so guru, disciple, Diksha, these are, these are uh, guru, disciple, initiation. These are three um, important elements of Tantra. Next one we'll talk about is mantra. So we, I, we alluded to that before. A mantra is um, some word which will liberate the mind from staticity and it will also um, help in that Tantric process of expansion. So this is mantra. So, so the meditation practice that was developed by the, the yogis um, of ancient India is based on mantra. So what is a mantra? So nowadays in the West, the word mantra has crept into the language. Um, many words are here, like pandit. You know, pandit is pandit. P-A-N-D-I-T-A is pandita. is um, someone who knows the truth. So we say a wise persons, usually we call political pundit, but mantra has also crept in, but mantra has crept in in a, um, in a bad way, like some politician will come to one um, location and he will say, I want to lower the taxes, and then this same politician will go to another place, get up, make the same speech, I want to lower the taxes, and then he'll go to the third place on the whistle stop tour and says, I want to lower the taxes. And then the, um, the, the um, journalist, at the end of the day, he got to write something interesting. So he said, Mr. Mr. Um, So-and-so's new mantra is lower taxes. And basically what it meant was a phrase which is repeated over and over again, but he, doesn't, he may or may not do it or he may not mean it. But this is not what mantra is. Mantra is a phrase which, when repeated, will um, do a few things. One of the things which will do, it will it will hit the kundalini, which is the spiritual energy, the dormant energy. It will strike that kundalini and help to, um, to um, start it to move on its march up the spinal column, which is one of the, um, also one of the great discoveries of tantra. So, so, so a mantra is a word that has a, a power, a vibration, which can strike the kundalini. Mantra also has another important thing. It has a meaning. It has a, it has a meaning which will um, 
help the person to identify with the Supreme Consciousness. And another thing about the mantra is it has a particular vibration. The vibration here means that that a human has a has a particular vibration which we call entitative vibration. The sum total of, of your rhythm is your vibration. And the mantra has a particular rhythm which is called uh, incantative rhythm. It was the chanting rhythm. And the supreme consciousness has a cosmic rhythm. And the idea is that we want to bring our individual rhythm aligned to that supreme rhythm. And the mantra is the bridge. Is the bridge which helps you to um, to go from that individual to the conscious, to the supreme. So this is the idea, um, what was um, taught in tantra and, and what was in those initiations. It was to give people the proper mantra, the proper practice, so that they can become one with the supreme. Becoming one with the supreme means to unite, and unite is yoga. So yoga is really based on this ancient practice going back thousands and thousands of years. But now, it sounds great, so why should Tantra have a bad reputation? Why should there be a bad um, meaning associated with it? That goes back to five practices which have a, um, a Sanskrit letter M at the beginning of them which is called, um, they're called the five M's. So that misunderstanding of these five M's is at the root of the misunderstanding of Tantra. So what are these five M's and why are they? We have to look at it from the historical perspective. Shiva taught 7,000 years ago. You know, 7,000 years ago is, is before the great pyramids of Egypt. It's, it's really, it's the, it's the prehistory. So in that time, Shiva noticed that there were um, different grades of different categories of humans, some of whom were really under the bondage of, of, of physicality and would have a tough time to, to practice subtle practices. And there were others who were, were more elevated who, and who could learn um, right, from the, right from the beginning they could be entrusted with, with spiritual disciplines. So there were there were two two groups of people that Shiva taught, and there were uh, practices for one and practices for the other. So we look at the five Ams. The first one is called Madhya. Madhya means means on the crude side, wine. So for some people who were addicted to wine. Shiva gave some kind of practice, we don't know what it was, it's lost in the antiquity, where they would practice, uh, they would take their wine in a sacramental way and then gradually wean themselves from it and learn how to um, uh, live without it. But now on the subtle side, Madhya Sadhana was also there, Madhya, M-A-D-H-Y-A. Um, it was there also, but here it didn't refer to any wine. It referred to um, a secretion coming from the pineal gland, uh, from the highest gland, which would go to the pituitary gland. This secretion was a hormone or fluid called amrita or nectar, divine nectar. 
and yogis who would um, maintain um, purity of mind and fasting on the new moon can taste that nectar. And when they tasted it, they would get a special kind of of, of um, bliss or samadhi, where they would get a, um, a light go in their um, in their uh, chest, in their anahata chakra. Their, a light would come, and they would feel extreme bliss. So this is called um, madhya sadhana of, of the of the subtle. So you see, there was a madhya wine, madhya subtle. That's why when Shiva, they said he was inebriated. He was not inebriated with wine. He was inebriated with this divine nectar. Then we come to the next M. Next M is called Mamsa. So on the, on the material side, that M referred to flesh, meat eating. So those people who were heavy meat eaters, Shiva, Shiva gave them some Madhya Mamsa Sadhana where they would... Um, learn how to um, control that practice and then even um, stop it. But mamsa sadhana on the, um, on the, on the um, spiritual side meant a few th- other things different. One is mamsa means tongue. It meant control of the tongue, control of speech. So, and even in tantra sadhana, there's a special position of the tongue during meditation. And mamsa, another meaning, according to Anandamurti, is that it also meant devotion, devotion to the um, Supreme Consciousness. So this is Mamsa Sadhana. Now we come to the third M. Um, it's called Matsya. Matsya means fish. Fish. So here again, on the, on the physical side, those who were um, uh, habituated to eating lots of fish, then Shiva gave a sacramental practice involving fish called Matsya Sadhana. And on the, on the uh, other side, on the spiritual side, on the subtle side, matsya um, refers to the fish that swim in the rivers, but the rivers are called nadis. Nadi is, means river. And these nadis are nerves. It, so there's a subtle nerves in the body. And, and some tantra recognize that there's a nerve going up the, um, in the spinal column. And then alongside the spinal column, there are two nerves called the ida on the left and pingala on the right. And they crisscross the spinal column going up and up and they form the chakras. And the control of the currents in these nerves through breath control or pranayama is matya sadhana of, of the subtle order. So this is um, this matya sadhana, is, this pranayama is very... Um, one of the great practices of, of yoga and of tantra. So, so this was. So we had the the, um, the M's now, the three M's so far on two sides. The next one is called mudra, mudra sadhana. So mudra here is uh, sometimes referred to some kind of parched grains or some some kind of foods. Uh, not clear. Sometimes even Anandamurti said it, there was no actual. Um, physical mudra sadhana. And on the subtle side, the mudra meant a few things, but um, most important in Tantra, according to Shiva, was mudra means to um, maintain a position with, with your, your spiritual brothers and sisters to, to take the company of, of, of 
of like-minded people, of, which is called satsanga, good company. So mudra sadhana means to find satsanga. Mudra, of course, in spiritual parlance also has some other meanings. One is the gestures that are made in, in Indian dance and in some forms of meditation. These are called mudras. Also, another meaning of mudra on the spiritual side is that just as you have yoga postures or yoga asanas, um, there are um, other positions called mudra. And usually mudra is different from an asana in that it requires um, a great deal of effort to remain in that um, position, whereas asanas are called easy poses and that you, once you get in that pose, you don't have to um, make much effort to maintain it. So this is mudra sadhana. But here, mudra on the spiritual side, the best is that it means satsanga or company of the great. So now we come to the fifth M. This is the one that, that um, it brought the notoriety of, of Tantra. So it's Maithuna. Maithuna, it means union or even sexual union. So on the physical side, so, so it's an um, instinct, just like eating or um, whatever different kind of instincts that people have. So Shiva recognized that, that people had that instinct and to help them to control that, there was a, a ritualized maituna sadhana, and the idea was also that, that people would learn to control and uh, and um, become the um, dominant over this. The mind would become dominant over the body, over the uh, so the mind wouldn't be enslaved to the, um, the the physical urges of the body. So this is maituna sadhana, and on the subtle side, the maituna sadhana means the union of the um, of the individual consciousness with the cosmic consciousness. This is the union. It's not a sexual union. It's a spiritual union. The raising of the kundalini from the lowest chakra to the highest chakra and the, the raising of the individual consciousness and merger in, the, in that supreme consciousness. This is what, what, the, um, what is really Maituna Sadhana. So what happened was, over time, with the lack of proper teachers, um, that some people thought it was easier to practice on the on the on the physical side, and um, people would eat some meat, get a bottle of wine, or like in India, people take some marijuana and, and then they they imbibe it and then they take the name of Shiva, say Shiva Bum or whatever, and um, like that, and, and then also they can engage in in sex and everything, and in the West, of course. Um, this was a great boon to people because uh, this is the most one of the most popular things here. So you make the yoga of sex, you you will fill up your um, studio immediately. So so this is what happened. But but the real um, tantra, the subtle tantra, which is really the um, the subtle tantra is where yoga was born, is is the tantra of of this um, the subtle five arms of, of madhya, meaning the divine nectar and uh, mamsa, meaning of, of, of control of speech and devotion, and matsya, meaning pranayama, and, and mudra, meaning um, good company, satsanga, and maituna, meaning the elevation of the kundalini and the elevation of individual consciousness to cosmic consciousness. So this is what is, is tantra. Um, and if you will see from it, you'll see that, that yoga is based on tantra. Even Anandamurti goes further. He says that the Tantra is not a religion. 
that, in fact, he, he if you read his essay, Tantra and the Indo-Aryan Civilization, you'll see that he compares the, the, there's a Hindu Tantra and the Buddhist Tantra, and it's, it's the same, just different terms for the names of the chakras. It's the same. But he says that more than that, he goes further, he says that, that Tantra is not a, a religion, it's a spiritual science. And wherever you find spirituality in all cultures, the principles of Tantra are there. The principles of Tantra are there. And then one more thing which he, he says is very important is that, that Tantra is also, it has its, um, it has its implications for society because it's, it's also a, a way of life. It's, a, it's an attitude towards the world which is, um, which is um, important to understand. And this attitude is that it's the spirit of struggle. It's the idea of that if there's imperfection, we have to uh, re conquer it. Whatever the imperfection is, we have to conquer that imperfection and go to perfection. So this is the, the spirit of Tantra. It's a spirit of fight, of, fear, of courage. Um, it's a spirit of, of courage. Of, like in Tantra, you know, there are um, three categories of humans. One is a category of which is someone who's dominated by the, um, by the natural forces. He's called Pashu, and his god is called Pashupati. And then the next one is a human, and the human is Vira, brave, and he wants to struggle against um, adversity. And his god is called Maha Mahavira. These are named to Shiva, actually, but it's, it's the same. There's not three gods, but, but it's... Um, it, when God is is taking, uh, um, uh, engaging with these brave ones, he's called Mahavira. And then when humans, um, through their courage, and they perfect themselves, they become divine. That's actually the, the main teaching of Tantra, of yoga, is that when humanity is fully expanded, it becomes divinity. So when these, um, these humans um, reach that status of divinity, um, their god is Mahadeva, and this is the god of gods. So anyway, this is the path of Tantra, and so before you, um, you know, you condemn it, or, you know, because based on ignorance, just try to understand it, but you'll see that it's really a wonderful practice, um, and it has a great promise for humanity, and, and it's, it's a practice, and it's a principles which are, have guided humanity um, in all parts of the world um, from ancient times and will help even in this um, complex um, modern period. So anyway, that's um, what I wanted to say about Tantra and um, in future podcasts I'm going to talk more about the different principles of spirituality and, and the different issues. So thank you all for listening. Namaskar. Oh,